Greetings humans and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 19. The show is now one years old. I know it's weird to evaluate one of the weirdest, if not the worst years of our lives, but I consider another milestone reach for the podcast. I found it hard to believe that I'll be able to keep it up for a year, but I think we've now found a routine. I've enjoyed discussing with all the guests and getting the feedback from you. Hopefully in 2021 we get to make the show even bigger and better. Now, for today's show, we answer a simple but weird question. How does our brain choose the words we say? I've said more than 100 words so far in this edition of the show. How did my brain choose these words and not other similar words? And that's what we'll try to answer with the help of Dr. Evangelia Balatsu, a cognitive neuroscientist. Before we go on with the show, If you enjoy listening to it, subscribe to the podcast and share it as this is the best way for the podcast to grow. Additionally, I have a weekly newsletter where I share my favorite news from the world of science and academia. I have small explanations and links to the research for anyone who wants to find out more. If you like that, go to the show notes and click that link to subscribe to the newsletter. Also, if you have any questions or suggestions, go ahead and follow me on Twitter at lefteris_asks and email me at lefteris@lefteris_asks.com. Let's now meet Dr. Evangelia Balatsu. Hi, I'm Evangelia. I just finished my PhD in cognitive neuroscience and I'm working in uh, speech technologies dealing with uh, automatic uh, voice recognition and uh, virtual assistants. Speaking is something we can all relate to and understand. When we're trying to find out what word to use in any particular case, I wanted to find out if there are any different theories in academia as to how we're doing this. Speaking is a, is a thing that we do all of us. Uh, we manage to say around 16,000 words per day in our native language. If we're monolinguals, uh, we speak about a rate of one or two words uh, per second. Uh, so there is this big question of how we select the correct uh, word for speech, which is something that uh, we do kind of uh, easily and very regularly. So even though speaking is this uh, very fundamental aspect of, uh, of language and of uh, human cognition, um, we're trying to understand what happens and how we select a particular word for speech. Why do we choose uh, couch instead of sofa? So the main idea is that we, we select the best word that is most suitable for us, uh, meaning that we find more accessibility for a particular word Uh, whenever we have used it previously many times. The other theory, uh, the other alternative view, is that uh, many, many uh, similar active words are competing in real time uh, until a, a final word uh, passes a specific threshold and is chosen for speeds. So what we're trying to, um, to see in research and one of the biggest questions of uh, language production research is how uh, we find the correct word for a particular concept and whether this requires this active competition between units before each word retrieval. When we're speaking, our brain is going to be lazy and choose the word we use most frequently for a specific topic. The other case is that two or more words will compete with each other in our brains until one of them wins and we choose that one. 
but is it that clear cut? Is it an either or situation? We see that in particular cases, uh, there, there are experimental findings that in particular cases, speaking requires competition when, uh, for example, speech is directed to use particular words on where, where in experimental psychology, we're trying to uh, use very complex designs to understand uh, the underlying mechanisms of speaking. Um, for example, using a picture word interference task where you have to name a picture of a couch and you have the word cuff, you know, on top. Uh, so you will be much more... Um, uh, inclined to select couch. So sofa, which you wanted to use previously, may be actively competing. The other possibility is that um, uh, you may have um, some speed or accuracy trade-off. So, for example, you may uh, one may be you know necessarily uh, induced to speak faster or more accurately in specific uh, designs or paradigms. So in that cases we may see some flexibility in the system. So in that cases, production may become or may look like more competitive, while in other cases, like in typical communicative speech between uh, two people, uh, production may not require uh, such uh, active competition. So in that cases, we, we could assume that uh, this is not necessarily dichotomous, but uh, it's a much more flexible uh, processing mechanism. So, Dr. Balazzo mentioned some experimental data and some examples of some tests that are held in order to understand how production works. But planning those tests must be hard. Once again, this is not tests conducted in the lab space. In my head, it looks like she has much less control of parameters of the tests. That's not necessarily true, though. Uh, when we're trying to see how language production works and works and particularly when um, word production works. So word production is the smallest um, meaningful independent unit of language words. So we typically isolate uh, single word production and we do so by using uh, picture naming tasks because in picture naming uh, we're trying to resemble uh, closely uh, semantically meaningful word retrieval. So you can imagine that verbs, for example, are like run or, or inspire or dream are much more abstract representations than a, a couch, a sofa, uh, a truck, or a, a mug, for example. So we usually uh, use picture naming tasks, which can have a lot of uh, varieties. And we, we instruct people to name pictures, uh, trying to uh, manipulate uh, many variables uh, included in, in experimental design. We can record their answers, their response times, which is the, the time it takes for a person to name a picture. And we can simultaneously uh, perform, um, record electrical activity or uh, neural activity from the brains. So this is the experimental approach that we are using to try to understand how speaking works. So now that we have an understanding of some basics of the topic, let's get slightly deeper in the work that Dr. Balazzo did. So what we did is we, uh, we tried to look at um, uh, response time, um, 
responses per se, so word choices per se, which is a very important variable that is not often measured for, for some reason. And uh, we also looked at electro, electrical activity from the brain. So we recorded uh, EEG, electroencephalography, uh, like wiring the brain to understand um, how uh, this basic uh, process of selecting a particular uh, word works. So we found evidence that um, you know some words are much more uh, time-consuming or appear to be more effortful for speaking. With and these uh, supposedly are words with multiple labels, okay, uh, which are in favor of the competition hypothesis, as you can imagine. That it takes a lot more time to select them because there is this active competition between representations. However, a novel finding that we, we found was that people have tend to have this uh, tendency for particular words. So there are couch people and there are sofa people, and this depends on uh, individuals' previous uh, word uh, choices, uh, which was a novel and a very interesting finding um, to see how language production works. So relating back to your initial question, uh, we can assume that these uh, novel word preferences uh, may require the least minimal competition in the system. In other terms, our brains are a bit lazy. They don't try to find the best word in any case, but it tries to find the most easily accessible word. Dr. Balatsu mentioned EEGs. The electroencephalogram is a test used to evaluate the electrical activity in the brain. Our brain cells communicate with each other using small electrical signals. And with that test, we can monitor this activity. So how did she use these tests in her work? With, with brain uh, signal, what happens is you can uh, break it down into sub-second, like millisecond scale. So with incorporate, by incorporating EZ into speech production research, you're able uh, to, to see uh, the participants' responses both from the onset of the picture, which is uh, uh, the early perceptual uh, processing of the brain until around uh, 300, 200, 300, 400 milliseconds, which are thought to reflect the word-finding process uh, and uh, leading towards uh, 500, 600 milliseconds, which is the phonological encoding and early articulatory um, uh, programs. And then what's what's actually good is that you can measure um, time-locked EEG. So for example, you can cut the response, not comparing, uh, you can cut the, the, the signal, not in reference to the picture onset, but in reference to the participant's actual response uh, and see from that point onwards uh, if, you're, if you're interested about um, you know, the late locus of speech production. The brain is so fascinating and I get really excited every time I get to talk with people that study it. So we talked about the two mechanisms of word choice and the way they test in order to find out which mechanism is more prevalent. But what are other characteristics and parameters that play a role in the choice of the word? When a person acquired a particular word, uh, we tend to acquire like mom and dad very early on, but uh, the word, um, I don't know, the word managerial statistics that I'm seeing right now, or the phrase, you know, management, it's a, it's a, it's a word that you most likely will acquire 
later on in your life, around your early adolescence. So age of acquisition plays a particular role. So in work product research, what we're trying to do is we try to associate cognitive uh, functions with particular variables that uh, are thought to hinder or be associated with cognitive functions. So age of acquisition is a very um, known factor to affect retrieval speed. Uh, another one is uh, lexical frequency. How frequent is a word in, in a particular language? Again, dog, it's a highly uh, frequent uh, word. While, um, I don't know, microeconomics that I'm saying right now in a book, in my book self, it's a less frequent word and a much more specific word. Uh, another interesting variable is the picture name agreement. For example, um, the, the measure, the proportion of speakers who use a particular name to, to name a picture. Uh, again, dog has almost 100% picture name agreement because everyone, uh, if, if not everyone, almost everyone will name this picture as a dog. Uh, couch and sofa are have lower name agreement because 50% of people will name a picture um, uh, as a couch and 50% will name it as a sofa. Uh, other words include like a number of syllables of a word that also is, affect, is affecting retrieval speed or number of phonemes. You know, uh, th these uh, are, have been very long documented in, in world production research. And the aim is to see uh, that, uh, whether uh, each particular experimental design with different results and different variables um, can uh, you know, connect this effect that you're seeing to the greater theory of, of word production. During the discussion, Dr. Balaccio explained that one of the applications of her research could be in a virtual assistant, trying to create a neural network so that the virtual assistant or chatbot can better understand what we're saying. And a lot of this has to do with the virtual assistant understanding our intentions when we're talking to it. And when she mentioned the intentions, something clicked in my head and I was wondering, what do you need to do that so that the virtual assistant can understand the intentions of the speaker? So this is actually pretty straightforward. So you infer intentions by semantics or by combination of semantics and context. For example, you call an airline and you want to book a flight. Okay, so booking a flight is an intention. This is the, 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 the semantics part, the purely semantics part, which means that you have to recognize the speech okay, correctly. This, uh, is, that this means booking a flight. And then you have to assign a meaning to this string of text that you receive by the ASR input. Um, however, if you're, let's say that you're a customer that has been furious and you're calling and, and interacting with a virtual assistant and, you know, you have these very contextual factors like uh, that you want to pay your bill, but it's the fourth or fifth time that a person has said that or that you have previously yesterday paid your bill. You know, this is also an intention of paying my bill, but there is also a problem arising with it. So that will be... Um, computationally registered as something else in, uh, compared to, you know, just bill payment in general. So um, this is how you try to infer intentions in, in modern um, virtual assistants, uh, or voice bots. 
So one distinction that needs to happen at this point is that this research talks about monolingual cases, basically when you only speak one language. However, many of us speak more than one or two languages. Then things become a little bit more complicated. All this uh, research is uh, what we call in psychology a core science research. So this uh, is trying to ask to isolate uh, how typical production works in a native uh, monolingual speaker. When you have two languages, things can get really mixed up. Uh, you know, you, you assume that there is a default by competition between the two languages. So that would, would require different processing mechanisms, different inhibitory mechanisms to inhibit and suppress one language, while the other um, different switching mechanisms. So uh, this deals with how a typical monolingual adult, for example, says words, uh, can be used as a baseline to investigate both bilingual or trilingual or multilingual language production. There is research that has been found which suggests that uh, de despite which language one operates when speaking, the other language uh, unconsciously affects production and affects your perception of language. Uh, even if you operate, for example, in English, but you're a bilingual Chinese-English individual, when you operate in English, your Chinese is very much active and you may not know it, but EEG actually shows it. For example, if there are incongruencies or, you know, these very uh, grammatical peculiarities in one language, they come up in the second language. Uh, and this is evidence, evident with EEG. Um, it's... it's a good, a good and useful example is about uh, Greek uh, bilingual, Greek English bilinguals. Uh, Greek English bilinguals uh, have a different, although this this kind of extends to another linguistic theory, have a different uh, understanding understanding of uh, galazio and ble, so light blue and dark blue. This is irrespective of which language which language one operates. Or, for example, that the Chinese have an incongruency in time. So uh, uh, the day ahead means yesterday. So uh, if they perform a task uh, in English, you know, they, they, their brain processes differently the concept of time, even though they operate in English, just because the other language is active. Even the relatively simple task of speaking has a quite complicated background that requires researchers like Dr. Balatsu to work many years in order to understand how our brains do the task. Dr. Balatsu went from studying English literature to psychology, and then her work with statistics led her to start coding, and now she's trying to create neural networks based on her experience with how we choose words. And on that aspect, Dr. Balatsu created the group Greek Girls Code, which you can find on Twitter. I'll link the group in the description of the show. This is an initiative that um, it didn't came overnight, but it was like implemented overnight. Um, you know, I noticed that in Greece, uh, and you know, if you isolate Athens in smaller regions of Greece, you know, women are not very represented in STEM or tech. 
not as much as any other cultures at least. So the first step was um, to try to see how many of us are out there to connect one another, uh, to try to communicate with one another. And uh, our next goal is to participate in public engagement. We want to ultimately, you know, serve as a good example and tell like, good stories of how each of us uh, ended up in science. So uh, it's about, you know, giving back uh, to your country or, you know, giving back to, to your community, whatever you, you think it's, it's useful. So please follow us on Twitter at, at Greek Girls Code. And you should most definitely do that and meet very interesting people and see their excellent work. That's it for another edition of Asterisk Ask Science. I want to thank Dr. Balazzo for her time. As always, you'll find links for the description of the episode for her work and if you want to contact. If you'd like to help, then please share the episode with your friends, since that's the best way for the podcast to grow. You can always contact me on Twitter, at lefteris underscore asks, for any suggestions or questions that you might have. Oh, and one last thing. The Christmas holidays are here, and especially this year, it's going to be hard for many people that can't see their loved ones. Some years ago, the British comedian Sarah Millican created the join-in hashtag for people to use during the holidays. If you feel alone, if you want to reach out and talk to someone, use the hashtag JOININ. I'll also be there to keep you company and reply to as many people as I can. That's it for Lefteris Ask Science in 2020. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind. <laughs>